You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! For over a hundred years, the world has been captivated by Hollywood. The uh, stuff that dreams are made of. Where stars are born. But just beneath the stardust lie a million more fascinating stories that when sewn together, form an incredible history. The Secret History of Hollywood, available now wherever you get podcasts. All right, quiet on the set. Camera speed. Sound production, take one. Action! Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era. Hear fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine, who quite literally lives just beneath the Hollywood sign, and actress-writer Nan McNamara. Now your hosts, Steve and Nan. Hey guys, welcome back for another episode. We're really excited to be with you today, and we've got a really great topic today. I think since the beginning of motion pictures, when the first one was ever made in 1908, droves of young men and women came from Dallas and Cleveland and Topeka and Memphis. They came to Hollywood. And Minneapolis. And Minneapolis. Paul. Exactly. They all came to Hollywood to try their luck at the Wheel of Fortune of Fame. Yep. For those that it worked out for, it was fantastic. For those that didn't, hopefully they went home a little wiser and learned a lesson and mm-hmm. kind of went back into a different life. But sometimes fame was not all it was cracked up to be. And that's the case of the young lady that we'll be talking about today, the incredibly talented and beautiful Helen Walker. And I did not know about Helen Walker until I first read your blog about her. It truly is a tragic story, but I'm so glad that we're going to get to highlight her life. And hopefully people can go back and revisit the many films that she made. Helen Walker was this coolly blonde, deep-voiced, sexy actress with a really great quality about her. She was part girl next door, like Priscilla Lane or Marjorie Reynolds. Mm -hmm. But then she had this sophistication and worldliness to her that was like Claire Trevor or Joan Bennett. So she really presented herself as a very unique type, which served her well in her career. Especially that voice. Oh, my goodness. Such a great voice. (laughs) Yeah, she has a great voice. She started out very, very humble beginnings. Um, She was born in Worcester, Massachusetts, July 17th, 1920. She used to say that she was born on the wrong side of the tracks and they didn't even have a biscuit, which I thought was a great expression. (laughs) We didn't have a biscuit. Her father died when she was six and her mother was left to raise her and her two daughters. Eventually, her mother had a nervous breakdown from the pressure of trying to keep the family afloat. So Helen kind of had to step in with her sisters and sort of be the mother figure. But Helen escaped in theater. She found her mark in school plays, and that's where she was bitten by the acting bug. Now, she went to New York eventually. She did, and she did what every 
actor does. She made the rounds yep. and uh, the casting rounds. She took an office job just to support herself, but she caught a lucky, lucky break when she was cast as the understudy to Dorothy McGuire in the hit play Claudia, which, of course, went on to be a movie later. And unfortunately, Dorothy McGuire, <laughs> darn her, she never missed a performance. Exactly. So Helen never got to set foot on stage uh, because Dorothy, by damn, was not going to miss a performance. Right, right, right. <laughs> but she did get cast soon after in a Broadway play called Jason. Yes, this changed everything. This yeah, play. yeah. And that starred Alexander Knox and the future star of TV's The Defenders, E.G. Marshall. Yes, that's right. E.G. Marshall. I loved him. Yeah. But while she was doing Jason on stage, there was a Paramount Picture Scout that saw the production and was really enamored with her. So he basically offered her a contract on site. Wow. So within weeks, she was on a train to Hollywood. Within months of being in Hollywood, she caught another lucky break. By now, she's under contract at Paramount. Mm-hmm. Well, Paramount star Paulette Goddard decided that she did not want to star opposite Alan Ladd in Lucky Jordan. Okay, what was that about? Well, I don't really know, but okay. you know, Paulette was kind of known for being very... Uh, Temperamental? High-spirited. High-spirited. <laughs> yes, I like that one. That's much better. Yes. Well, it proved to be such a great break for Helen because Paramount had just signed her, so they took a chance on this fresh-faced newbie, and they gave her the leading role opposite Alan, Alan Ladd. And she was only 22 years yeah, old. Yeah, what an auspicious beginning to yeah. a career. The film was a huge critical and commercial success, and um, Helen Walker received great reviews. So she was on her way. I mean, mm-hmm. what, what a great start in Hollywood. Right. After Lucky Jordan... They didn't quite know what to do with her, which is often the case I've noticed with some of these actors. Mm -hmm. So they cast her in some really kind of humdrum films. She did a film called The Good Fellows in 1943, which was this forgettable comedy uh, with Cecil Kellaway. Okay. She did Abroad with Two Yanks, which was a comedy with William Bendix and Dennis O'Keefe, who she would go on to star with in like five or six other movies, interestingly enough. Hmm. In those movies, she was basically set dressing. She was just there to be the the pretty girl. Right, right. She finally fared a little bit better in the next couple of films. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it, she's so good in Brewster's Million from 1945. It's just great comedy about a World War II vet, again, played again, by Dennis, Dennis, O'Keefe, Dennis O'Keefe. Right? O'Keefe. Yeah. He inherits something like $8 million from his rich uncle, but there's one stipulation. He must spend it within two months or he gets nothing. And they did a remake of Brewster's Millions in 1985 starring the phenomenal Richard Pryor and one of my faves, John Candy. Yes. What a different take on it they did for the remake. It was great. It started as a Dennis O'Keefe, Helen Walker comedy. Wow. She also fared pretty well in her next movie, which starred the great, one of my favorites, Fred McMurray. It was a really dark comedy called Murder, He Says, where, of course, she's the love interest of Fred McMurray. Well, by this point, she's achieving artistic and box office success. So she's on the brink of major stardom at this point. And that's the perfect time to marry a Paramount executive, right? (laughs) What does every young starlet do when they come to Hollywood? Just marry an executive. They star opposite Alan Ladd in their first film, and then they marry a Paramount executive. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And that was Robert, if I'm pronouncing it right, I believe it's Blumoff. And he would go on to produce Yours, Mine, and Ours in 1968, and the Best Picture Oscar nominee. Bound for Glory in 1976. Now, they were married in 1942. How long did their marriage last? Oh, not not long at all. I I think it lasted four years, but 
This was a very pinnacle point, I think, for Helen Walker because Blumoff was very social. He yes. was big on the party scene in Hollywood. And I think this is, you know, they became a very social couple together. Socializing was almost as much a part of a young actress's job as of anything course, back then. Of course. So I think it was at this point that Helen Walker probably started her very complicated relationship with alcohol, mm-hmm. which we'll, we'll, you know, we'll see how that unravels as, as we go along. Her star was rising, but she got really, really tired of playing the girlfriend, the pretty wife. The, yes. She wanted to be challenged as an actress. And so she started questioning her career trajectory with Paramount. Now, was this when she was still married to yes. Blumhoff? Okay. This was around That's... this time when she's still married to him. Yeah. Because she... I think, had the gumption to... Stand up for herself. Exactly, stand up for herself. Paramount labeled her difficult. You know, it goes all the way back to then. Women are difficult and men are strong. I'm so tired of it. I know. It's a prime example. I'm sure if (laughs) Alan Ladd had questioned his career trajectory with Paramount, (laughs) it would have been... It wouldn't be difficult. It would be a very different story. No, it wouldn't be difficult, yeah. So she started freelancing. Yeah, well, because they dropped her contract. Right. They said, basically, you're difficult. We're done with you. We're done with you. And she did. She started freelancing. Freelancing, and this is where her career takes definitely a shift. Freelancing was hard in Hollywood. Yeah. If you didn't have the protection and the security of that Contract studio, and that studio, you know, you were just actress to the wind. Yeah. You, know, you just took what parts you could. Right. And her next few movies were very disappointing. In quick succession, she appears in Murder in the Music Hall. Ever heard of that one? No, no. <laughs> Although there... it did star my my girl Anne Rutherford. Oh, did she ever um, talk about Helen? Yeah, Anne she Rutherford? did. She, she talked she... about her, because I specifically asked her one time at lunch about Helen Walker, and she just said she was a, well, because Anne was like a truck driver sometimes, <laughs> but... She said she was just a, a, a good time girl, I think is how she explained it. Okay. She said she was lively and, and social. And, and I think that was Anne's sort of polite way of saying that she was a party girl. Okay. okay. I, I remember specifically that, which sort of ties into the story. Yeah, yeah. After Murder in the Music Hall, she appears in Clooney Brown in 1946, which she was basically a supporting actress to Charles Boyer and, and Jennifer, Jennifer Jones. Jones. Yeah. But even with those great stars, the movie was a bomb and it did nothing for her career. Yeah, really especially didn't. back then when, yeah. you, as you said, you didn't have the studio behind you. These B-movie film companies, yeah. they just don't have the clout. They don't exactly. have the ability to... And even with great stars like Charles Boyer and Jennifer Jones, she was a supporting character. Mm-hmm. That was the point in her career where she went from being leading lady to just taking what she could get, yes. which was which is so unfortunate. Yes. Because uh, she was. She was immensely talented. She did a couple of other movies, another one with Dennis O'Keefe called Adventurous Night in 46, and then a horse racing drama called The Home Stretch in 1947 with Cornell Wilde and Maureen O'Hara. Okay. None of this helped her career. Yeah. I mean, she was definitely on a downward spiral uh, but, in her film choices. But the next film that she has an opportunity to be in is 1947 Nightmare Alley. Iconic. Yes, iconic. with Tyrone Power, our friend Joan Blondell, who we <laughs> adore. And... It really. And Colleen Gray, you can't forget. Oh Colleen yes, and Gray, Colleen Gray, who I loved. and Colleen Gray. I actually met a couple of times. Now this film, as we know, was remade in 2021. Um, Guillermo del Toro did it with the yummy, yummy Bradley Cooper <laughs> and Kate, Kate Blanchett. Blanchett. Yes, and that's the role yes. that Helen Walker plays. She plays the psychologist. Yes, and this movie, and I say this, I've said this before, it should have changed Helen's career and placed her back on top because she plays 
this nefarious psychologist who teams up with this fraudulent mentalist played by Tyrone Power yes. to start scamming people out of money. And she just brought this cool, calculated control to the character that was absolutely a joy to watch. It really was. It's, I think, her best movie, the movie she's most well-known for, and a movie that really should have sent her back on top. And it, it so easily could have been played the role she could have pushed. She could have really made it some sort of stereotype. And as you said, she coolly oh, plays this. You're never really sure no, if she's, if a, good she's guy, a good person a or a guy. bad person. Yeah, I know, and, and she just underplayed it with such yes. subtlety but such sharpness. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah, and she's phenomenal in this movie. Yeah, it's a it's a must see. Unfortunately, around this time when she's got this great break with Nightmare Alley, her personal life is going to hell. I thought it was four years, but after three years of marriage, Walker and Blumoff divorce, and it was rumored that a part of the reason they divorced was because of her drinking. Okay. And really interesting, if you've ever read Yvonne DiCarlo's 1987 biography, and it's so worth a read because she tells all. Does she? Yeah, she tells you where all the bodies are I'm and buried. <laughs> who yeah. she slept with, and it's great, really <laughs> oh good gosh. read. But she's talking about fellow parents Paramount actress Gail Russell, who also had a very tragic end because yes. of alcohol. Right. And in her autobiography, DiCarlo wrote, she, meaning Gail Russell, uh, despised acting and everything it entailed, especially being out on display before executives and film crews. I sympathize with her misery. There was an actress on the lot, however, who would show Gail how to cope. It was the good-natured but tough-talking Helen Walker. She took Gail under her wing and introduced her to the tranquilizing benefits of vodka. And if if y'all have you know listened to this podcast before, <laughs> alcohol just continues to yes. bring people down, especially in the 30s and 40s. Yeah, it's just so many talented people just lost everything because of alcohol. Yeah. So she divorces and she begins seeing a director by the name of H. Bruce Lucky Humberstone. Yeah, I love they called him Lucky. I know. Because he wasn't so lucky in every respect of his life. <laughs> and he was known for directing the Charlie Chan movies. Yes, he did a lot of those Charlie Chan mm -hmm. films. As well as I Wake Up Screaming, yeah. which 1941. Betty Gravis and Carol Landis, who we've spoke of yes. on another episode. Yep. Hello Frisco, Hello in 43, and The Pinup Girl in 1944. He also directed Helen in The Home Stretch in yeah. 1947. Humberstone and Walker had a very complicated and interesting history. And just stay with me, people. <laughs> Humberstone, along with his then wife, had been the best man and the matron of honor at Helen Walker's marriage to Blumoff. Yes. So they yes. all were big buddies and drinking pals. So once the divorce happens between Walker and Blumoff, she goes, mm. How about you? Uh, I'll take the best man. <laughs> yeah, I'll take the best man. You're right there. I don't know what happened to the then wife, but she's out of the picture. So they start seeing each other. And again, they're social, they're partiers, they're part of that drinking yeah. party scene. And yeah. it just does not help Helen at yeah. all. So let's talk about Ugh. what happened on New Year's Eve in 1946. She is driving mm. back to Los Angeles from Palm Springs. Helen is by herself yes. in the car. Yes. And take it from there, Steve. Yeah, and she's 
she's and she's actually in Humberstone's convertible, and okay. she's left Palm Springs. So along the way, she sees this young soldier whose name is get this Robert E. Lee. <laughs> yes, and he's hitchhiking, which was very common in those days. It was a time when feelings of patriotism ran deep, and young men who served our country were revered and greatly admired. So if you see one hitchhiking, you're, you're going to yeah, pick him one up. Yeah, assume he had his, his uniform on, and yeah, you know, it was and- different days. You, you didn't have to worry about being chopped up in little pieces yes, <laughs> back exactly. then. So she picks this guy up and they're just driving away and a few miles down the road they see two more soldiers hitchhiking. This guy was Philip Mercado and Joseph Montaldo. Well, she gives him a lift too. And just as a side note, she was very involved in the war effort. She had yes. given blood multiple times. She also had performed, I believe. Oh, uh, numerous USO shows. She, I mean, she was really patriotic and right. did her part selling war bonds. I mean, she took it very seriously, which is a little ironic when you see what happens. Yes, but it, yes. It, it doesn't end well. We'll just say that. Yeah. Sometime after midnight, Walker lost control of the car and she hit a concrete median around Redlands, California. Mm-hmm. The car flipped several times, skidded almost 600 feet before you know, before coming to a stop. And you mentioned it was a convertible. Do we know was the top down? I don't know, but I do know that all four were ejected from the car. I do know that from reading the the old newspaper articles about it. Mm -hmm. But Robert E. Lee was killed instantly and Walker fractured her pelvis. She had a broken collarbone, severe broken toes. And the other two soldiers were also very seriously injured. So this was the beginning of the end for Helen Walker. She spent two months in the hospital recovering. She was charged with manslaughter and the death of Robert E. Lee. It was just devastating to her, and it really sent her into a deep depression. Before we continue with Helen Walker's story, I think it's time for this week's Hollywood Pop Quiz. Yes, absolutely. And you know what? Keeping in the theme of the war effort Mm -hmm. and patriotism, our question of the day Another beautiful blonde actress from the 40s, Veronica Lake, her trademark was her long blonde peekaboo bang hairstyle. Yes. But during World War II, her hair became a problem. In fact, it was such a problem that the U.S. government actually stepped in and intervened. What was the problem with her hair? Oh, my gosh. Okay. (laughs) No Googling allowed. We'll be back with the answer and more about the wonderful Helen Walker after this. Welcome to the future in this year's wildest super fun show for adults. Hey gang, it's Josh Olson. And Joe Dante. And we want to tell you about our podcast. It's about movies. Josh, there are a thousand podcasts about movies. Sure, but ours is different, Joe. That's true, actually. Our guests are writers, directors, musicians, comedians, actors. Hell, we even have other podcasters on. We play no favorites, and they don't talk so much about their own work but about the movies that have influenced them and made them who they are. We call out the movies that made me. We've talked with people like Guillermo del Toro, Little Stevie Van Zandt, Martin Short, Ethan Hawke, William Freakin, Barbara Crampton, Jonathan Ross, Dennis Lehane, Mark Duplass, Adam McKay, Lorraine Newman, Jason Reitman, Alice Anders, Elijah Wood, Stephen Canales, Eli Roth, Joe Bob Briggs, Roger Corman, Bobcat Goldthwait, Leon Douglas, Dana Gould, Martin Campbell, Shane Black, Albert Hughes, Emily Deschanel, Joe Biafra, Larry Fessenden, Nicole Hawkson, Shaka King, Lee Daniels, Rosalind Chow, Clancy Brown, Yardley Smith, Ike Barron, Steve Arkett, Thomas Miller, and Uwe Boll. It may not be highbrow, but it's lots of fun. Subscribe for free on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. In color to thrill you as never before. Yeah, Film Vault. We are one of the original film podcasts. That can't be true. There was like two other film podcasts when we began, Brian. How long have we been doing this show? You and I first sat down and did a version of the show over 20 years ago. My God. There is shtick, but it's very little shtick. We finish each other's sandwiches. Close enough. 
Was that a joke on a movie? Yeah, that's from uh, Frozen. Oh, it is. Pretty bad. Yeah. Oh, look at you. I don't want to be like quoting it, Frozen Anderson, on this promo. Anderson, okay, peek behind the curtain. Anderson's nope. like the Frozen guy. Like he'll constantly reference animated films, family films, and I'm more the edgy indie guy. We do have the tropey thing going on where Brian does like the big Hollywood sexy summer movies. I'm always looking for like the hidden gems. Mm. Two episodes each week. One, we review movies, and the first episode, and the second one, top five time, top five different top five every week. Movies that made you cry, worst movie accents, most disturbing movies. All right, the film ball, check it out. Wherever you find a fine podcast. That's right. The Film Vault's going on 20 plus years. All right, Steve and Nan will be right back. But first, another stop on the Hollywood tour. The Writers Guild of America has tens of thousands of members. But did you ever wonder who's the most successful film writer in the history of Hollywood? Well, here's a big hint. He's been gone for a long time. And even more surprising, he never lived in California. You see, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, William Shakespeare is the most prolific film and TV writer ever. Imagine that. He takes the honor with at least, get this, 410 feature-length film and TV versions of his plays. Give it up for the Bard. And now back to Stephen Ann from Beneath the Hollywood Sign. So we left off. Helen Walker is recovering in the hospital. She's been there for two months. She's charged with manslaughter. And clearly this is affecting her on not just physical level, but on a mental level as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, she was devastated by this. She had expressed her regret and sorrow so many times, had contacted the families. She really felt horribly about this. So during her trial, the two surviving soldiers testified that she might have still been drinking as they drove along and that she was driving at speeds of uh, at least 80 miles an hour at the time. But Walker claims that she was not drunk and she was only going 45 miles per hour. Okay. So that was sort of the he said, she said right. portion of the trial. So because of that, he said, she said, in for, in April of 47, she was cleared of yes. all criminal charges yes. due to insufficient evidence. I think in those days, they probably couldn't do breathalyzers. Of they didn't course. have the technology to really tell right, to really evidence. get to the bottom of it. Right. But you know, but, but the two soldiers, they still filed a civil suit against Helen Walker seeking $150,000. And I know that that was settled and there was a payment. Okay. I, I, it was all closed files. Sure. But she did have to pay, which also hurt her, even though she was cleared of criminal charges. That's the difference between the criminal and civil courts. Yeah. OJ. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, Hollywood, Hollywood is such a funny place because sometimes it yes. will lift someone up after yes. something like this. And sometimes they just decide, nope. Yeah. And in this case, Hollywood was not kind to her. Oh, not kind in the least. In fact, when the accident happened, she was scheduled to star in Heaven Only Knows for United Artists. Well, immediately they fired her and replaced her with Marjorie Reynolds. They even spent over $100,000 to reshoot the scenes that, that Helen they had Walker already shot. had already shot. So that's how done they were with, with Helen Which, Walker. $100,000 back in the, in the day was a lot. It's a lot of money right now for me. Absolutely. But it was a lot of money back then. Yeah, I think the worst part for Helen was that she became known as the drunk who killed a U.S. soldier. And that was a huge burden to carry on, especially in those times. And given her 
heart for this country yes. and all she did. Yeah, absolutely. She tried to get her career back on track, but to not much success. Post-accident, her roles were thankless. It's a great movie, but she's wasted as Jimmy Stewart's wife in Call Northside 777 yeah. in 1948. I mean, at least she does get scenes with Jimmy yeah, Stewart. which um, is nice. Which is nice. She's also Rudy Valley's former secretary and my dear secretary in 1949. Yeah, which was actually, it's a, a it's a very cute movie, but it's not a huge part or anything that's very challenging for her. Yeah. The other thing I noticed about this time period in her career, and she's still quite young. She was yes. born in 1920. Yeah. So in 1949, she's 29 years old. Yeah. And you are starting to see the effects of the alcohol, and I would imagine her depression as well, on her face. Yes. And we know, ladies, <laughs> that we are not allowed to get any of that on our face, right? I, I know. And it, it really is sad because you can almost watch her movies and see the physical changes yeah. as her alcohol intake increases in her performances. Same thing with Gail Russell. If you watch the yes. early Gail Russell in Angel and the Bad Man and you see her in her final film, it's shocking, yeah. the effect of alcohol on the face. One of the things she did during this time period is she tried to change her image. And her next film, Impact, in 1949, certainly does that. Absolutely. And she was always the leading lady, usually the good girl. But this movie is the first time I think she ever truly played the femme fatale. Mm. It's this very complicated story starring Brian Donlevy and Ella Raines. And she plays his scheming, murderous wife. And it's just such a magnificent performance. She's finally an outright villainous. Yeah. And she plays it with such pizzazz yeah. and such skill. I mean, you just hate her so much. But this could have been an opportunity, as you said, to change her image completely yes. and go in a different direction as, right. as the bad girl. And especially with the notoriety of the accident and the, the dead soldier, it almost could have been a publicity coup for a studio to get behind this yes. as the new film fatal. But for some reason, it didn't really happen. Mm -hmm. So her next three films, her final three films, yes. very different than her beginnings. She's in My True Story in 1951, which is a, a movie. Where which, she plays an inmate, which is strange, I'm sure, at the time. Yeah, definitely. In Problem Girls in 1953, she's the matron of a girls' school. Again, I'm thinking of how old she is here. Yeah. She's still quite young. And then her final film was The Big Combo in 1955, where yes. her part was small, but she's talked about kind of throughout this whole film. Yes. And she has an amazing... It's, it's a essentially a character who is having a breakdown. Yes. She's so impressive in this film. Oh, she really is. And it's a shame because I think her performance in The Big Combo really reminded audiences of her wasted talent, what we missed out on because of that horrible disease of alcoholism. Right. After this, her personal life gets no better. She has another brief second marriage to a department store executive from 1950 to 52. And then, I think it was 1960, she loses everything in a horrible house fire, which what more can you put on this woman? Yeah, she just can't really catch a break. Yeah, so she can't. That's 1960, but she does have help from some of her colleagues yes. uh, during that time. Dinah Shore, Hugh O'Brien, Ruth Roman. Ruth. 
And Vivian Blaine, they staged a benefit to help her. So, Which I'm sure could not have been easy for her yeah. to, to basically take the charity from your colleagues. Yeah. That must have been tough. Yeah. So she's struggling financially. And then just, mm. I mean, just to put another nail in the coffin, yeah. I hate to say it that way, but she is diagnosed with jaw cancer. Yes. And apparently it was a long, lingering horrible death for her. I, okay. And I think it, it was spread out over 10 years. Finally, on March the 10th, 1968, she dies in her very small, modest apartment in North Hollywood, far from the days when she was living the high life. And she was only 47, 47 years old. 47 years old. Yeah. I know. Her body was flown back to her home state of Massachusetts and was laid to rest with her dad, which I thought was really nice because mm -hmm. she, she loved her father. Yeah. Just jumping back to what we were talking about with the effects of alcohol on her face, I'm so struck and it makes me angry that there is this line that women cannot cross. Yes. Men are allowed to grow older and they become distinguished. And yes. women, whether they have alcohol or not, are not allowed to do that. I know. It's funny. The, the more craggy and seasoned a man's face gets, yeah. the better. Yeah. I mean, you work forever like Gary Cooper and Humphrey Bogart. Exactly. You know, it, it was good, but women forget it. One story I wanted to tell about Helen Walker as we sort of wrap up her story was I have a dear neighbor. Her name is Lisa Mitchell, and mm -hmm. she was an actress. In fact, she was in The Ten Commandments, directed by Cecil B. DeMille. Really? She played one of Jethro's dancing daughters by the well, if you remember the, those scenes. <laughs> yes. Um, and Lisa was a wonderful dancer, a wonderful actress, and she's just the loveliest neighbor and loveliest friend. And, and we so bonded over old movies and old Hollywood. But Lisa did a play with Helen Walker at the Actors Ring Theater, which is now the Coast Playhouse in West Hollywood. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, and On Santa Monica. On Santa Monica, mm -hmm. yes. And the play was The Children's Hour, which we've talked about on this podcast before. And who did Helen play? I don't remember which of the ladies she played, but it was one but of the leads. But she did play one of the leads. It was one okay. of the leads. And Lisa played one of the young girls, because Lisa was just like maybe oh. 11, 12, 13 at this point. What a thrill. And, and she she loved Helen Walker. I mean, she told me the greatest stories about how kind she was and how she helped Lisa and really took an interest in Lisa's career and, wow. and tried to show her the ropes. And they remained friends for many, many years. And Lisa told me that during this period that she never saw Helen take a drink. She never saw Helen's smell of alcohol. Helen showed up on time every day. She was the epitome of professional and grace and loveliness. So. Wow. I'm hoping by this time, maybe some of the demons had subsided and Helen was in a better place, yes. at least for that run of that play. Right. And another interesting story that came out of the blog about Helen Walker mm -hmm. was shortly after it was released, I was contacted by Helen Walker's niece. Oh, um, my gosh. Who's this wonderful actress, and she's a professor of theater arts at Ithaca College in New York. Her name is Kathleen Mulligan. Okay. And Kathleen read the blog, and she was so taken with it, and she wanted to ask me just questions about the research I did and where okay. I found articles. And yeah. so we had this lovely exchange about her Aunt Helen, hmm. and she told me some great stories about her. You know, again, she had nothing but loveliness to say about her and just uh, how much she admired her. And as an actress, Kathleen is developing a one-woman show about Helen Walker. Oh, that is wonderful. Which I don't know where she is in the process, but Kathleen, if you're out there, I can't wait to see your show, and I think it's such a great idea. Yeah, and, and, uh, and keep and me posted. <laughs> yeah, let us know where it's at. You know, that is really a lovely way 
way to end this because Helen Walker's story is tragic, but the fact that she can be remembered on stage and certainly in these films that we will post in the show notes. Check out Helen Walker and uh, let's continue to yeah. remember her beautiful work. I know, just another bright light snuffed out way too early. Kind of lost to Hollywood and the pressures of fame. So yep. a cautionary tale. A cautionary tale. Well, right now, I think it's time to answer the question to our Hollywood pop quiz. <laughs> and of course, the question was, back in the 40s, Veronica Lake wore a trademark peekaboo bang hairstyle yes. that became such a problem that the U.S. government stepped in. Why did they step in, you ask? <laughs> I, I cannot wait. I have no idea, and I cannot wait to hear. Well, during the war, women began working in the ammunition factories, and they were emulating her hairstyle. Of well, course. the hair kept getting caught in their machinery, causing all oh, kinds of problems oh, oh, on the floor. So the government actually contacted Veronica Lake and told her what was happening <laughs> out there, that she was so popular. These women were duplicating the hairstyle and asked her if she would change her hairstyle. And of course, Lake, being the patriot that she was, she complied. And she even made an advertisement about the hassles of having the peekaboo bang hairstyle. <laughs> that is extraordinary. But interestingly enough, once she cut her hair, her her career went south. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that's not good. I wonder if Jennifer Aniston has any stories about her haircut. <laughs> All those Rachels out there. All those Rachels, yeah. Well, that is really interesting. I know, right? Yeah. Just a reminder, our social media, we are on Instagram, on Facebook, and on YouTube with the handle at From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. We would love it if you would follow us. And also, if you have any questions, comments, uh, ideas for a future podcast episode, we would would love to hear from you. You can reach us at info at from beneath the Hollywood sign.com. That's this week's view. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. You've been listening to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign with Steve Kubine and Nan McNamara, the podcast that celebrates amazing stories of Tinseltown from its golden era. Join us next week for another episode and learn something else about Hollywood you probably never knew. Take a moment and give us a five-star rating and a positive review. And tell your friends about us, too. It'll help grow the podcast. Visit Steve's website at FromBeneathTheHollywoodSign.com. The executive producers are Steve Kubine and Nan McNamara. Executive producer and post-production supervisor, Lindsay Schneider. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like The Box of Oddities and The Shallow End with Schnebley and Toth. Copyright 2024. All rights reserved. That's a wrap. Thank you.